This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Saturday edition of the Best of Fight Back from the week that was. We started the week by checking out how you plan to vote on October 21st. Ahead of both the English language and French language debates of this past week, Libby Snymer was joined by Peter Mugrich, senior editor of Zoomer magazine, and Zoomer media vice president David Kravitz to get the results of the Zoomer primary at zoomervote.ca. It was the first weekend we've had on the Zoomer poll where the conservatives eked out a very narrow, admit I think three three votes, but three votes. <laughs> a, a very narrow win. Uh, after falling behind right from the get-go there. They've never won over a weekend period. And so um, they're not 10 points behind. They're nine points behind. But if that's a that's a trend, then it's a small one, but it reverses uh, uninterrupted series of losses. Right. And um, we, we did the, uh, the push-out on... Um we we did an article on the um, the the party's senior platform, so the the poll was was kind of a measure of where voters stand on on the on the party's senior platform. Well, that's that's kind of interesting because I know that presumably independent people who have looked at the platforms say that in terms of goodies for seniors, that uh, the liberal platform is superior to the conservatives. I think this. I think this is true. You know, monetarily, there are a number of experts who have looked at not just the dollar amounts, but the breadth of what's covered. Um, the issue is, though, um, are all of the parties going too narrow? Like, here's my little goodie. Here's my little goodie. Is there some other ticking time bomb issue? I noticed the Canadian Medical Association is trying to gin up some uh, coverage of healthcare as an issue, and the number of Canadians that. Uh, don't have a, a family, family care, doctor. A family doctor. That's will that resonate with anybody? But uh, I think in mathematical terms, you're right. I think the liberals probably gave away a few more dollars than the other guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure they did, and it's interesting. So the weekend's tallies, uh, percentage wise, is thirty five point nine seven for the conservatives <laughs> to thirty five point six four for. The liberals. So uh, that's pretty well equal. That's pretty well what yes. other polls show. But in terms of, of, a, of a seat count, that doesn't end up equal. The liberals have a more efficient vote. They can actually lose in all the models I've seen. They can lose the election, the popular vote by a couple of points and still have more seats uh, than the conservatives. So um, the conservatives need to open up some daylight and they've not yet failed, uh, uh, they've not yet succeeded in doing that. How do you think, Peter, that the Zoomer vote maybe differs from the general vote? Our, our undecided is much higher. So we, we have a lot of voters sitting on the fence till the last moment, waiting to cast their ballot. And I'd love to be able to reach that 12%, which over the weekend it grew from 10 to 12. So I'd, I'd love to reach that, 10, that 12% and see you know, wh- where they are, because they'll, they'll ultimately decide not only our poll, but the election. Yeah. And if uh, they break one way or the other, or if they simply distribute 
or if based they on the main out. numbers, you know, that that twelve percent winds up going fifty fifty. Or if they sit know. it out, right? Like like there's that possibility as well. Well, does it surprise you that the undecided vote actually grew? Can you point to anything that would have caused that, you know, one way or another? I think the story, the broad stroke story, is that nobody's really caught fire yet. There Mm -hmm. hasn't been one big issue that has just swept the boards Mm -hmm. and now everybody's scrambling to realign in response to that issue. Nothing, nobody's broken free. Nobody's broken out. And whereas uh, whereas in the last election by now, Trudeau was breaking away. Wasn't he? Like he, he was, you know, you know, uh, liberal support was, was zooming and and conservative support was nosediving at this point. If you look at, if you look at the nanos poll, for example, which is a daily three day rolling average, they report every single day. 35 to 33 liberals, 35 to 33 conservatives, yeah. 36 to 34, 34 Never to 34. Never gets higher than those two or three points, does it? In that, yeah. NDP goes up to yeah. 14, goes down to 13, goes yeah. up to 14, goes down to 12. Nobody's, we, we were locked in this kind of waiting game, I suppose. Maybe the debates will make the difference, but nobody's really broken free yet. No. That was David Kravitz, Zoomer Media Vice President, and Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine. As for the running Zoomer primary tally, the Liberals remain in the lead at almost 43% support, with the Conservatives at 33%, the Greens at 8%, the NDP at 4 the People's Party at 2%, and the undecided vote is at 10%. Have your say at ZoomerVote.ca and listen on Thanksgiving Monday after the noon news to hear the latest results. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Was it the crucial, pivotal event it was touted to be, or was that just a lot of hype around Monday night's English language leaders debate? Still with the federal election campaign, Libby was joined by our Tuesday strategy panelists to give their impressions. Here are Karen Stintz, former city councillor and current CEO of Variety Village, John Capobianco, senior vice president and senior partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, and Charles Bird, managing principal of Ernst Cliff Strategy Group in Toronto. I would say that most people will be inclined to see the debate through their own particular partisan lens, which is to say, if you're a liberal, you're inclined to think that the prime minister did well. If you're a new Democrat, you're inclined to think Jagmeet Singh did well. But trying to step back and looking at it objectively, I would say that probably the the most interesting moment was right off the top when Mr. Scheer launched into a pre-prepared ad hominem attack on the prime minister, um, where he referred to him as a phony and as a fraud and the kind of language that usually isn't um, associated with individuals who are trying to become Prime Minister of Canada. And I have to think that there were very deliberate reasons for that. And I would also say that it was a, it was a pretty big calculated risk taking that kind of uh, bare-knuckled approach so early in the debate. But um, if it backfires, it will backfire very badly among undecideds. I thought overall Sheer came off looking strong, and he needed to. But that opening statement 
which also, I mean, he wasn't answering the question that was put forth. And I thought, hmm, that was a bit much. What, what, what was your take, John? Well, I, I'm one that actually was quite impressed with Andrew Shear. I thought that he did come out fighting. I thought he did so, so strong. And I think, you, you know, you can't win for trying with, uh, when you're a politician in general, but certainly with Andrew Shear, because everybody would say, oh, he smiles too much. He's too friendly. He's not strong enough. Does he have the, what it takes to be prime minister? Well, I think he shows that he's got some stick about him. And I think that it was an important one because I think he's feeling frustrated with Justin Trudeau, as are many Canadians, about this this, hypocr- this hypocrisy of him, this issue of of you know what he's what he says one thing and what he does by way of action. And I think he just wants to reflect that anger or that frustration with him. But I thought the rest of the debate was really strong. I thought he came out really strong on policies. I thought he defended himself when he needed to defend himself. I thought he uh, went after Justin Trudeau when he needed to in a in a way that was very much policy oriented. But I thought another good line uh, was when you know again Justin Trudeau was mentioning Doug Ford for the third or fourth time uh, and he came back to him and said you know you've got this really weird obsession with provincial politics you know the Liberal Party of Ontario has an opening why don't you run for that and I thought that was a really good line <laughs> that was got, a good line but it got I the, wonder it, who thought it up it got <laughs> the crowd actually applauding and, and laughing but overall I thought that uh, Jagmeet Singh did fairly well I think he of course he doesn't have much to, to lose uh, so he can go in there with a bit more of a comfort level but I thought he did very well yeah but nonetheless I thought Andrew Shear did well Karen? Yeah, I, you know, debates are one of those necessary evils that we need to have in an election campaign. Um, I think that, you know, Andrew Scheer had to shed the image that he can't make a decision, that he's not uh, prime ministerial, and I think he did that. Justin Trudeau, you know, was defending his record to the best of his ability. And, you know, Jagmeet Singh, to your point, John, he had nothing to lose, and he did, he, you know, he was the one that seemed actually most comfortable in his own skin. Yeah, and, exactly. Uh, in terms of being able to articulate his position and the position of the party, by and large, I think there was a couple things that uh, missed opportunities for him, but by and large, uh, I think he did very well. Um, I do think that the discussion about how we have debates needs to continue, mm-hmm. because I don't know that um, having... Even Elizabeth May, who has two seats in the House of Commons, and Maxime Bernier and the French fellow, I, I don't know how that adds to the national dialogue. And so those are sorts of the, that, I mean, that, I think that's the big takeaway is, is how are we going to have these debates? If they're going to matter, then how are they going to be held? Charles, do you think you won anybody over? Again, I'd, I'd reiterate the Prime Minister going back again and again and again to his key messaging, which is meaningful action on climate change, having put a price on pollution. You know, that's, that's, that's a very, very meaningful act in terms of uh, actually combating or reducing carbon emissions. Going back again and again to the fact that Mr. Shear's proposed tax breaks disproportionately favor the wealthy over the middle class, over the working class and those working to join it. Karen? I think that Andrew Scheer did better than expected. I think that no matter what Jagmeet Singh does, it doesn't matter, to be candid. I, you know, the rest of it is just really going to be whether or not Andrew Scheer, he has a little opening that I think he's created for himself. And whether he can make the most of that opening during the rest of the campaign, I think, will be his opportunity. There's no question that Justin Trudeau should have been uh, going into this with with no issues at all. He should have been reelected with huge uh, with a huge majority. The fact that he's not is a, is is troubling. I think to the Liberals uh, and an opportunity for the Conservatives, which is why I think they're trying to seize on it. I think yesterday was an opportunity for Andrew Scheer to be able to break away from the crowd and and actually have people talking about him in a very positive way. I think that might have been the case, and I and I think over the course of the next two weeks, this like this coming weekend and beyond, is going to show a bit of a breakaway on on some of this, and we'll see next week. Uh, how it all plays out. But I think Andrew Scheer did very well in the debate. 
Our Tuesday strategy panel, John Capabianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, Karen Stintz, former City Councilor and current CEO of Variety Village, and Charles Bird, Managing Principal of Earnscliff Strategy Group in Toronto. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Now to the hot button issues of traffic safety and congestion. Two big moves are being made in the GTA. First in Mississauga, where changes to the current traffic bylaw are being made to lower speed limits across 10 different neighborhoods from 50 kilometers an hour to 40. And here in Toronto, another towing blitz got underway, this time on Queen Street. Cars illegally parked between Fallingbrook in the East Beach and Roncesvalles in the West are being relocated to a side street instead of being towed, ticketed, or impounded during rush hours, which is the current policy. It's a six to eight-week pilot project at a cost to the City of Toronto of $80,000. Joining Libby to discuss both initiatives, Toronto Police Sergeant Brett Moore of Traffic Services and Mississauga Mayor Bonnie Crombie. You know, there's 50 everywhere except in school zones, of course, so we think this is one step towards a meaningful step towards achieving our, our uh, vision zero. And uh, not only will we, when we reduce speeds in neighbourhoods, we've chosen one neighbourhood per ward, so there will be 10 for now and hopefully another one coming soon. But this will also help promote active transportation by making it safer for families to walk and ride and commute. And it's a tool that we can use to address speeding um, in neighbourhoods and also keep our pedestrians, our children, of course, and cyclists safer. So it, it's something we've been interest, interested in doing for a number of years, but it, well, it used to be very cumbersome because you would have to change all the traffic signs, all the road safety signs throughout the neighborhood. Um, but now through the Highway Traffic Act last May in 2018, they allowing municipalities to establish lower speed limits within neighborhoods using an area speed limit. So that's how we're able to do this. So we have adopted a plan to implement 40 kilometer per hour neighborhood area speed limits on some of our smaller residential roads. And we've identified priority neighborhoods. So each of the councillors have identified um, a one neighborhood in each of their wards. Um, and this will get rolling out um, after council this week and we'll be installing new signs. And we're very hopeful this will reduce speeds, obviously, keep people safer um, and keep our pedestrians and our cyclists and our children safer. Brett? Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. We're, uh, I, I'm super happy to hear that all the different municipalities are, are catching on to Vision Zero. We're talking about it. Um, it, it's a, it's, it takes, it's going to take a long time to get to that, uh, uh, you know, that goal, but, uh, we're all working together. I can tell you the different transportations, um, between Toronto, Mississauga, Durham, they're all collaborating. They're talking, they're learning from the different engineers and different techniques. So, um, we, you know, we, uh, every municipality, every, community is a little bit different and i really like the approach where uh it's data driven but listening to local communities to to meet their needs um and where um it's not a a one-stop uh meets all everybody's going to be a little different every like we we see toronto we're scarborough big wide streets 60 kilometers per hour sometime this year you're going to see 250 the city and toronto transportation are lowering 250 speed limits in toronto down by 10 kilometers per hour and that's just a start and we all know that just the numbers on the sign don't mean too much. 
And so if you wake up in the morning and the number is different on the sign, but the road still has the same look and feel, people tend to go the same speed limits, the, the speed limits that they're comfortable going. So the start is lowering, which is a, was a big hurdle to meet. And then it's to bring in different engineering, education and enforcement techniques. Now, uh, I just quoted the number of all the road deaths in appeal and in Toronto, it's higher, right? It, it, you know, if, if, they are yes, and I can tell you where we are now in Toronto. Um, uh, you know, we've we're seeing almost seventy five percent of the people killed in Toronto on our roads have been vulnerable, whether you're a motorcyclist, a pedestrian, uh, or whatnot. And um, again, none, I always, when I get the chance to talk about it, just to remind people we throw these numbers around like just that numbers. Every one of these is a victim of family, um, and, and we're you know us more than most get the, and you know have to uh, to deal, connect, and communicate with families and victims of these crimes and so uh, definitely we have a long way to go and it's super important that uh, it's not just about enforcement it's not just one thing it's not just engineering it's it's a whole holistic collaboration um, and it's going to take a lot of work and energy to get those numbers down uh, consistently not just year over year because statistics are really easy to compare from one year to the next but it's when you string them together and see a long sort of consistent trend uh, happening and that's what we're working towards uh, mayor crombie what would you like to leave us with on this <laughs> Be cautious, slow down in neighborhoods. I think this is very significant. It's a, a big step towards our Vision Zero plan that we adopted back in early 2018. And I think it's very worthwhile that we can reduce the speed in the entire neighborhood uh, of each ward, not just a single street. So okay. slow down and be careful. Mississauga Mayor Bonnie Crombie and Toronto Police Sergeant Brett Moore of Traffic Services. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. It's the latest seemingly impulsive foreign policy move by U.S. President Donald Trump. On Sunday, he announced he's pulling U.S. troops out of Syria as part of his promise to withdraw America from the endless war across the Middle East. The move left America's Kurdish allies, who did much of the heavy fighting against ISIS, open to an attack by the Turks, which ended up happening over this past week. That's why Trump faced a backlash even from some of his staunchest Republican supporters like Senator Lindsey Graham. What does it mean for us here in the West? On Tuesday, before the Turkish incursion into Syria, Libby was joined by Irfan Yar, security analyst at McDonald Laurier Institute, and Bradley Palumbo at the Washington Examiner. So the reaction against President Trump's decision has been vitriolic from both establishments. You have people like Lindsey Graham in the uh, Republican establishment, and then you have Democratic leaders who are kind of aghast at the president's decision. Um, I will say that they really should not be so surprised. This is something that the president campaigned on, pulling troops out of the Middle East, ending our endless occupations of foreign countries, and putting America first in foreign policy. And frankly, you know, it's a complicated situation with with many troubling outcomes, but that's all he's doing here. So kind of the bipartisan backlash against it, uh, to me, they, they should have expected this. Yeah, that's what a lot of people are saying, Irfan, that that uh, why were you surprised by this, given other things that he said and done? The White House decision that uh, U.S. troops would leave northern Syria and Turkish forces would move and has shocked not only U.S. allies internationally, but uh, domestically in Syria, especially the Kurds. 
And we know that many years ago when ISIS took control of the largest parts of northern Syria and northern western Iraq, the U.S. formed a coalition to combat this Islamist group. Although they were very successful in launching the airstrike, but they always find difficulties to fight the Islamists on the ground. And it was Iraqi and Syrian Kurds who turned out to be the most effective and anti-IS fighter on the ground. But now this remarkable move shows that they were left abandoned to the mercy of Turkey, which, of course, has its own implication for, for Syria and for the region as a whole. Bradley, is um, he? he, I don't know if he's walking anything back, but he's he he sent another uh, tweet saying Mm -hmm. that he would crush Turkey economically if they went too far. The Trump administration is not known for being orderly and reasoned and taking cautious steps and being well organized. So I personally think that this is a good thing that they're doing, a good decision, but it has been done in kind of a characteristically chaotic way. And that's why you're seeing a lot of confusion about what exactly is going on. The president shouldn't be announcing any of this via Twitter because it leads to this kind of confusion where he's saying one thing, then he's saying another. I think what's clear is that President Trump wants to bring American troops home from the Middle East, but he's also rightfully concerned about the Kurds and doesn't want to see a terrible outcome for them. So he's trying to simultaneously draw back our military presence, but also put pressure on Turkey to not just come in and obliterate the Kurds, because that would be a human rights disaster. Irfan Yar, from your point of view, uh, what's the best way this could be resolved at this point? Well, I would suggest uh, two level of uh, you know, solution. One is uh, both domestically and on international level or regional level. When Trump take decision to pull out or at least allow uh, a Turkey to have a bigger say in northern Syria, it should assure that uh, the problem between Kurds and Turkish should be left aside to one hand and they should come to to a mutual understanding to fight against the common enemy, which is ISIS or some other opposition group. So this one solution, in that case, we can we can minimize the risk of Turkish being, you know, fighting with uh, the Kurds. And the second uh, thing should be that uh, uh, the U.S. international allies, especially the NATO, uh, should also assure United States. Uh, that U.S. must consult with other countries when they are going to take this kind of decision. Because usually whatever decisions are made by the U.S., the NATO members, such as European countries, are always hard. Because because they, usually if, if, if U.S. foreign policy, which are being achieved by the NATO, NATO mostly... Uh, speaking of the European, so they should be also taken into consideration when Trump moves such kind of, you know, decision. That was Libby's conversation on Tuesday before the Turkish incursion in Syria with Irfan Yar, security analyst at McDonnell Laurier Institute, and Bradley Palumbo at the Washington Examiner.
This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the week. Diane in Mississauga phoned to say she's completely disillusioned by what's been happening in recent election campaigns. About 30 some odd years ago, the Liberals decided to turn their campaigning into a slander campaign. So rather than talking about issues and what was going on, they just badmouthed the other teams. And I think that's just, you know, pervaded the entire political scene for so many years now. I think it's disgusting. And I'm at the point now where I'm saying, you know, after 40 plus years, I'm almost considering not voting anymore because these campaigns aren't campaigns. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Jim in Pickering, who admitted his daughter was once a bully when she was young. I don't think we're putting enough emphasis on, I think, one of the main uh, key areas is in the home. And that's where it all starts. And, And I think that the punishment does not need to be harsh or punitive. It needs to be firm and consistent. So my daughter's a teacher now. Now, she was bullied a long time ago and whatnot. And one time we got a call about her. It was like grade 7, 8, and I mean, a long time ago. And I said, you know what? Phone me anytime, 24-7. And I just told my daughter, and it was no, you know, no corporal punishment, just you can stay in this house as long as you wish and go to school for as long as you wish, but you cannot you know, go there and embarrass us or yourself. And and she knew that any time you try one more thing, and I hear, and I'd be standing at the door waiting and just laying down the law. But you know what? We have to look at the parenting and guardianship. That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays at 416-360-0740 on Zoomer Radio. AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.